or there, we'll answer you right away. Or you can send us an email at thebreeze at chafee.edu and just like uh, drop us a line. Let us know who you want us to interview, who you want us to talk to, or even, hey, so much shameless self promo. Let us know, like, hey, I'm creating this amazing thing and we should talk about it. Mm-hmm. We want to give. Welcome to the third episode of the Breeze Radio Hour. Uh, we'll be streaming here every week at uh, chafee.edu backslash broadcast, or you can listen to us on the radio at AM 1630. I'm Eric Spencer. I'm here with my co-host. Madeline Aguilera. So we have a few things on uh, our plate today. We're going to be talking about bias in the media. We'll be talking about uh, my latest piece uh, called Humanitarianism or Interventionalism. I'm sorry. Humanitarianism or Imperialism, which discusses uh, the U.S.'s role in so-called humanitarian efforts around the world over the last few decades. Uh, We'll also be talking about voter suppression. Um, we'll end up closing the show with how the superdelegate system works in the Democratic Party, which right now you may be wondering because it's a very complicated process, and I'll try to make it as simplified as I can. But first, uh, media bias. So, Maddie, you wrote about uh, media bias. Um, why do you think the media has a bad reputation, and uh, where, where did this all start? I think personally that it stems from way far back to uh, even before World War One, because that's when... In my opinion, propaganda hit an all-time high, and it was able to spread re- very rapidly because of lack of instant communication. But before I dive into that, I'm just going to define propaganda real quick, which is basically just the information, especially of a biased or misleading nature, used to promote or publicize a particular political cause or point of view. So from that, I'm just going to touch on uh, the political cartoons, especially that were released in World War One. So... Do you have any in particular that like come straight to mind when you think of World War One and like the propaganda that was spewed? Well, when I think of World War One, I, I think about the Espionage Act in 1917, which um, severely limited any kind of um, speech against the war, mm-hmm. and it's actually been used to this day. In fact, uh, President Obama prosecuted more journalists under the Espionage Act than all other presidents combined, and it basically was to squash the anti-war movement Mm -hmm. in uh, the early part of the 20th century. I actually did not know that. (laughs) But um, I think... Uh, I think why propaganda was so huge, especially in the ni- like early 19th century, like before, like let's say like 1917 and stuff like that, and World War One was because, again, of lack of instant communication, which is because the first radio transmission of voice wasn't until 1919, and then the first licensed radio station was until 1920, and then after that, the de- development of shortwave radio was until long after World War One. Right, so if you got any piece of information, it most likely from was from a newspaper. You yes. probably were limited on how many newspapers you even had access to and probably when you by the time you got the newspaper it may have been weeks old yes and i think uh, we as at least as a generation we take a lot of the things like the resources that we have uh for granted like resource checking the online free things that you can go easily back and refute things that are like propaganda or like spread things that are are misleading or false so always resource check (laughs) definitely i mean even in our current age it's even more important to you know to check uh where these people that are reporting these things got their information because although, yes, you have more access to information and quicker, there's a lot more disinformation yes. as a result of that. 
So, yeah, I, I mean, I wanted to point out, as far as that goes, media biased um, and propaganda definitely ha- didn't start in the early 20th century, oh, and it no. definitely hasn't ended. For instance, the New York Times has has supported every foreign war and every foreign conflict that we've gotten into over the last 200 years. I mean, starting with even the Spanish Civil War or the Spanish, I'm sorry, the Spanish-American War, which we entered um, because they supposedly sunk the main uh, and which ended up being a lie. We uh, entered the Iraq War Mm -hmm. because of WMDs, which ended up being a lie. And going back before that in the Vietnam War, we entered it because supposedly North Vietnamese attacked a U.S. vessel in the Gulf of Tonkin, and now we know that was a lie. And as as much as we should make sure we know where all this information is coming from, the papers that are reporting it that are responsible for telling us, they need to check the information as well because they reported just, you know, outright lies. So what advice would you give to a viewer or a listener that is trying trying to be as educated as possible with the the most facts? Well, look where the article is sourcing their information from. If 100% of what they know about, say, the starting of a war or any kind of conflicts, especially in those situations, where are they getting their information from? And if it's just from a government official, that's not good enough. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to do your own research. If you're talking about WMDs, you need to examine the same evidence Maybe not you, but the papers do mm-hmm. need to examine the same evidence that the government is analyzing, so you can come up with, you know, maybe a a more uh, fair, you know, assessment of of what is going on. Because mm-hmm. just if if so and so from the State Department or so and so from the Pentagon or some general is saying this happened, then then it's not necessarily true. I mean, th- these these um, these guys go on MSNBC and Fox News and mm-hmm. they're former generals, former admirals, but also they a lot of them sit on the board of companies like Raytheon and Boeing and, mm-hmm. and some of the biggest military contractors in the world and they stand to directly profit from any kind of war. So you, official people inside the government, especially, you know, sources that basically all of mainstream media relies on should not be trusted at face value. I agree. So I have, I noticed that you have written a recent piece on propaganda and just covering that topic. Would you mind uh, telling me about that? Well, my specific piece was regarding, and it does involve propaganda because, you know, that's how our society is, convinced to go to war Mm -hmm. and in democratic societies especially it is easy to convince these populations to go to war than any other even dictatorships and some may find that surprising but it because it comes from democratic societies think of themselves as being just they think of themselves as defenders of freedom Mm -hmm. so if you tell them we have to go to war because such and such a dictator is is killing his own people and we have no choice but to send in troops to stop it that is a pretty convincing selling point in our society because we want to go help but what my piece kind of outlines is how that is never the case 
you know, um, and I outline a, f- a lot of our humanitarian, so-called humanitarian interventions in the past. Mm-hmm. In the 1970s and 80s, we went to virtually every South American and Central American country to, quote-unquote, give them democracy, to topple their dictator, which... Do you in- feel as if that worked? Absolutely not. I mean, it, it worked in how the U.S. military actually wanted it to, mm-hmm. uh, but not as far as how they sold it to the American public. We weren't going in there to help anyone. We were going in there to overthrow left-wing mm-hmm. leaders and replace them with right-wing dictators. The um, Just, you know, if we were interested in democracy, we wouldn't be militarily supporting 73% of the world's dictatorships. I completely agree. Yeah, so, you know, in we did this in Guatemala, in Panama, in Cuba, in the Dominican Republic, in El Salvador, Nicaragua, Argentina, Brazil, Bolivia. Wow. And it was under the guise of maybe trying to stop communism from spreading, but all we mm-hmm. did there was really ruin their political cultures. We, re- we, we installed vicious dictators. In Guatemala, for instance, 200,000 people were dis- were displaced, a million more, or I'm sorry, 2,000 were killed and a million more were displaced mm-hmm. in a quote-unquote humanitarian effort. And uh, every international human rights organization has called us a genocide since, and we're directly responsible for that. Wow. So, yeah, there's a lot more. Um, the, uh, you know, one of the humanitarian interventions that's defended the most is the NATO, U.S. NATO intervention in Kosovo, and that was to stop uh, what they were calling a genocide, which definitely um, there was a, s- a slaughter of ethnic Albanians in Serbia, mm-hmm. and Slobodan Milosevic was uh, heading the government, and he was committing atrocious war tr- crimes against these people, but our public was sold the same bill of goods during this. We need to go in to stop this. But what actually is the result of us going in there and stopping it? U.S. General Wesley Clark at the time warned before the NATO airstrikes that an attack would escalate violence in ethnic Kosovars, Kosovar Albanians. It wouldn't alleviate it, which is exactly what happened because this, the Serbians would not be able to launch a counterattack versus the U.S. if we attacked them. Mm-hmm. Their only course of action would be to step up violence against the ethnic Albanians, which happened. And not only that, but the, the NATO's bombing of power plants, of civilian infrastructure, cut off water to hundreds of thousands of people, killed countless civilians, and in, in essence destroyed the country's economy. So... When we go in there to help, even if it is for good reasons, the use of military force, in my opinion, never has good outcomes. And if we're gonna, if we're gonna be different, then we need to enter, you know, a new age of peaceful um, diplomacy, mm-hmm. you know, or else things are gonna end the same. Would you say that these values or these views, they kind of that you believe that we should be headed towards? Would you say that they really almost to socialism or would it be a completely different branch what, what do you mean what sh- so like uh a lot of the views you're saying like so we should cut back on our military uh like pressure and like uh, international affairs and stuff like that so would you say that we should focus more along like headed towards the route of communism or socialism or along well i i don't know if if that would be the answer you know a lot of the people maybe listening would say 
how could you say that? Socialism has never worked. Yes. Communism has never worked. Yes. And it, it, in essence, means that you give the state 100% of the power and there's going to be all these killings in the streets and people are going to be executed. In reality, true socialism or communism hasn't ever existed. The, the idea comes from you know, the philosopher Karl Marx and his true philosophy has really never been implemented. A lot of people look towards the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Now, the Soviet Union may have started off as a communist revolution, but as soon as Lenin got to power, he disbanded the Soviets, he disbanded the workers' unions, and he consolidated all power. To, and he actually assassinated or had um, arrested and killed a lot of the more moderate left-wing um, communists uh, like Rosa Luxemburg and... Uh, Anton Panikok, these people were killed because Lenin wanted to consolidate power. Now, he sold the people still on the fact that this was a communist revolution, but it, because the commun communism at that time had kind of a moral, a moral authority. So Russia being one of the biggest propaganda machines in the world at the time, pre you know, put out this notion that, that they were still somehow a communist society, even though they were fully autocratic and like I said, the unions and the Soviets and all these things were already disbanded. At the same time, the U.S. propaganda machine, one of the, the, the second, or, you know, the two of their propaganda machines, the Soviet and the U.S., were the strongest at the time. So with both these propaganda machines trying to paint this, the Soviet Union as a communist country, mm -hmm. um, obviously that's what people believed. But it's the, Leninism is an, a right-wing iteration of that philosophy. And then if you go to Cambodia or even, you know, in the seventies under Pol Pot or even Vietnam or a lot of these places, none of them have really implemented true socialism or true, um, communism in our country. You know, a lot of people will call Bernie Sanders a socialist and in, yeah, in reality, he's a democratic socialist, which mm -hmm. if, if you don't study, political science maybe you don't know the difference or maybe it sounds the same and come this next election they're they're really going to be pushing that that the fact that he's a communist you know quick fact martin luther king was a democratic socialist and all it means is a mix of some social programs as well as capitalism it's not against any kind of private property which you know communism socialism is mm -hmm. it's just saying that maybe some things should be taken out of the free market maybe Maybe healthcare should be a right. Just maybe school should be a right. Mm -hmm. Maybe we should have fire departments in case somebody's house catches on fire and they can't afford to put it out. Maybe we should have a police department. These are socialist programs. And all Bernie Sanders is asking for is that we take that a step further. He's definitely not calling for executions in the street or mm -hmm. some kind of undemocratic society. In fact, democratic socialism is more democratic than the than what we have now. I mean, as... We'll probably talk about here in a minute voter suppression, mm -hmm. but um, you know we need a bottom-down democracy instead of what we'll, we've been living in is a top-down democracy. And um, our current efforts in Venezuela is another thing I want to I want to touch on. We uh, we're gonna do that after the break though. So here's a quick PSA announcement. Can you tell if these vegetables are being contaminated with bacteria that could cause paralysis? Listen. 
can't, can you? You can't see it either. Use different cutting boards so that the bacteria in raw meats and seafood and their juices doesn't touch prep surfaces for other foods, like veggies. Raw food may contain bacteria that can make you very sick, or worse. One in six Americans will get sick from food poisoning this year, and roughly 3,000 will die. But you can keep your family safer by separating raw meats and seafood from other foods. Learn more about this and other important information. Check your steps at foodsafety.gov. That's foodsafety.gov. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Hi. 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 Welcome back to the Breeze Radio Hour. I'm your host, Eric Spencer, alongside... Maddie Aguilar. And we're talking about humanitarian missions that the U.S. has launched. Now, most of them are military, military, but a lot of the ones people don't know about involve sanctions. Now, sanctions have long been known to hurt the most vulnerable people in the society. So it's not trying to topple the regime. It's trying to put pressure on the people of that country to turn against their government. And, you know, this may be a little bit of old news, but with Trump bringing Guaido, which is the the U.S.-recognized president of Venezuela, he's not the actual president, mm-hmm. he was recognized at the State of the Union address. So this attempt to overthrow the Venezuelan government has not ended. And we've been doing it through sanctions. We've been doing it through basically, you know, this started when 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 people were starting to get you know, uh, uh, there was unrest and the economy was collapsing. Part of it was the fact that the U.S. was seizing millions of dollars worth of uh, U.S. or supplies going into Venezuela. And so the people, you know, a lot of this was mismanagement of the government by Maduro, but I'm specifically talking about the U.S.'s role now. So mm-hmm. I'm not saying they're without blame. But when you want to overthrow a government, and you do it by blocking, say, 200,000 doses of insulin, by blocking billion dollars worth of assets held by the Venezuelan government, when you stop the sale of their number one export and their number one basis of their entire economy, which is oil, they have the largest oil reserves on the planet. You know, go figure, why would we be be interested in regime change in Venezuela if they didn't have if oil. they weren't, yeah, <laughs> they weren't the most oil-rich country in the world. Yes. Even uh, John Bolton, who was, you know, dug up out of the the George W. Bush administration, who was one of the architects of the Iraq War, he said on Fox News that it would be it would be a great benefit to U.S. businesses to for us to go into Venezuela and topple the government. So you know, sometimes they say the quiet part out loud. And you can see what their actual intentions are. But, you know. was So their intention is basically like, in uh, was just for benefit for bigger companies, bigger. Yeah, we want to go in there and take the oil. Mm-hmm. You know, that's my opinion, I guess. But this has been confirmed by even state officials that may not have said that out loud. This is not the first time we've tried to do it. In 2002, um, President Bush openly supported a coup in Venezuela. Mm-hmm. After Hugo Chavez, which is Maduro's predecessor, nationalized the country's oil, meaning, hey, we want the oil to be 
for the benefit of the Venezuelan people and not, not transnational corporations. Yes. And so they, they staged a coup and the military took Chavez into custody. An Exxon mobile lawyer named Pedro Carmona swore himself in as president, kind of exactly like Guaido did. And, but the coup failed because it was said that Chavez was dead. And as soon as the people realized that he was alive and in military custody, they all hit the streets and forced the military to let him go. So this is not the first attempt that, that we've, we've had at taking that country. Mm-hmm. So yeah, some of the things that, some of the things that they say also is we have to go in there and install democracy. And so how do we do that? Well, why would we do that? The well, US, U.S. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, obviously, like, well, I mean, like, in the past, we've tried to apply military pressure to instate our democracy, quote unquote, to to these like other countries. So do you feel as if we are just going to do what we've done in the past and just apply military pressure? Well, we will. And we will. Well, in the U.S. doesn't like, in my opinion, the U.S. doesn't <laughs> like the U.S. doesn't like democracy unless it's favorable to themselves. We mm-hmm. uh, we overthrow governments because it is going to be beneficial to the elite in this country. If 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 it's if the elections aren't going to go our way and we're not going to get someone in there that's going to be favorable to U.S. business interests, mm-hmm. then we're not for democracy. And that's that's been proven time and time again. People have had Democrat in Venezuela. Uh, former U.S. President um, Jimmy Carter, founder of the Carter Center, which is a leading global election monitoring agency, said the Venezuelan ex- elections are the best in the world. You know, in Venezuela, voters are verified by fingerprints mm-hmm. before gaining admittance to voting booths. Uh, then the electronic voting machines tally votes. Each voter receives a receipt showing who they voted for. Mm-hmm. There's an audit done of 53% of polling sites. So... You you may not like Maduro, but that has nothing to do with a country being having the right to their own sovereignty. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, the U.S. is selling us on humanitarian intervention. They know we're not going there to help anybody. We're going there to help ourselves. So, speaking of, you know, pristine voting, <laughs> uh, you have some information for us about how voter suppression in this country has worked and how yes. our democracy could be stronger. Yes. Tell us um, about it. Basically, voter suppression is just suppressing the vote in targeted geographic areas using methods such as voter ID laws, voter registration restrictions, voter purges, and big one I'm going to talk about is felony disenfranchisement. But to start us off, uh, I think a big one would be voter ID laws, specifically just because... 36 states have identification requirements at polls, which is, of course, you have to have show ID to vote. Like, it just, it makes sense. But seven states, which um, I'm not entirely sure exactly which ones, but I know that seven have a strict no exception photo ID law that states you must present a government-issued ID. I have a problem with this because these cards always, they're not always accessible to everybody else. You have to pay what? like $35 to get a government issued ID. Right, which is which is why these laws exist. They are mm-hmm. they have long been known to have outcomes where it disenfranchises black and brown voters and yes. as well as poor people. Yes, I again like it Sorry. can be a, a significant burden on people in lower income uh, communities because of required costs is just like just to obtain just a government ID it's just required costs it's just a hassle. So 
again, another point would be the travel required for people that live in rural areas or people that are disabled. It's just like we should have more access to polling places that are closer or we shouldn't have like or personally, in my opinion, provisional ballots for stuff that's not your registered polling place. I believe everybody should just have a regular ballot. But of course, that's not going to ha- that's not how it works. So how do you feel about that? Yeah. With like voter like with specifically on the ID and uh provisional ballots. Well, on the ID, like I said before, I, I think it it is intentionally disenfranchising a certain group of people. Now, we're also the only one of the only countries in the world, democracies anyway, that have our voting day is in the middle of the day on a weekday. Mm-hmm. That is not by accident. In my opinion, that is because we are trying to have people that only have you know, some people can't miss a little bit of work. Some people can't make it to the polling station that day. You know, some people would have to take a bus. You know, this makes it incredibly hard for people with less assets Mm -hmm. to vote. And that is absolutely intentional. It's meant to, you know, turn out more affluent voters and it's meant to turn away others. So that's another, um, thing that I've noticed at least with is the registration restrictions so specifically what I'm referring to is New York uh New York uh let's see you basically in New York you have to register at least 25 days before the election by forcing these voters voters to register before it even becomes like important to the general public like let's say like who other than like people that are fully invested in politics like that have taken these classes or just just invested in general they're don't necessarily like the general public doesn't necessarily it doesn't reach them as quickly so by forcing them to register 25 days in advance it cuts down the people that are going to be able to vote because they're going to get rejected because they did not pre-register so specifically i'm talking about the 2016 presidential election over 90,000 new yorkers were unable to vote because their applications did not meet the 25 day cutoff and the state had the eighth worst turnout rate in the country because of this specific rule of the 25-day cutoff. So I think, one, making it more accessible, having same-day registration would be would be able to get way more votes in. I think it's a system that needs to be changed. How would you feel about same-day voting registration as well as potentially voting online? I think that would be a great idea because it's not only accessible to people with disabilities, but people who don't have the form of transportation to go to their polling places, you can do it online. And it has the same day registration for like last minute people, aka me, who procrastinate until the very like the general public it becomes salient to them. Like they want to, to know about it. Right. And maybe they can't make it in to, to vote. And so my thoughts are that this is intentional. This is an intentional yes. system that has been set up. And it is well known that if voter turnout is high, then people on the right and left overwhelmingly vote for populist candidates. And the establishment on both sides, the right and the left, do not want this because, you know, that would be pro-workers and they'll do anything to stop a pro-worker candidate. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know anything about voter purges? Voter purges, I do. Um, I know that... I, I can't remember if it was countrywide or just in one state, 300,000 voters were purged from the rolls in a system that the Republicans implemented called cross-check. Mm-hmm. And this meant that if someone has the same, na- same name, say um, Juan Gonzalez in one state, and they vote, 
Then in another state, if there's a Juan Gonzalez that voted, they just assume that's the same person and assume it's fraud mm -hmm. and they eliminate both votes. So, wow. and when you check the lists of who got purged in this cross-check program, it's overwhelmingly the names of black and Latinos. Wow. Yes, I, I, can, I think that this system that is built on, especially with voters, to suppress certain uh, groups of people. So um, the one thing that I was going to relate to with voter purges was, the, again, the 2016 election, uh, was in Arkansas, it purged thousands of voters for a so-called felony conviction, even though some of the voters had never even been convicted of a felony before. And... It's just like it had a huge impact. And then in 2013, Virginia purged about 39,000 voters based on data that was later found to have an error rate of up to 17%. So why do you think that we instated this voter purge? Like, what, I personally don't know the reason as to why this was implemented. Do you? Well, I have an opinion about it. And it's, okay. it's based on a lot of facts. But... Uh, Specifically in the cross-check program, these were Republican governors that agreed to the program to share the voting records across state lines and just purge anyone, even with a common name. Like I, the reason I used Juan Gonzalez is because that's a very common name. Mm -hmm. There's probably hundreds, maybe thousands in yes. the country. And if you purge the vote of every single person that's named that, uh, and then you check the lists of who actually was flagged under this program, uh, there's been a lot of... Uh, good investigative reporting on this by uh, a reporter named Greg Pallast, which I would recommend anybody interested look up his work on this subject. But the list, as I said before, is overwhelmingly black and Latino. And if mm -hmm. it's Republican govern governors that are doing this during the 2016 presidential election, it is clearly because uh, black and Latino voters were not going to vote for Trump. Yes. And they wanted Trump to be in, and so they're going to implement whatever policies they have to to thwart real democracy, you know, which is the Democrats aren't the only ones. Uh, I mean, the Republicans aren't the only ones guilty of this. There's, you know, gerrymandering where you draw crazy districts, and California is one of the worst. Yes, I was just about to touch on that subject yeah, because 2020 is coming up, and mm -hmm. we're supposed to about to draw new district lines. And I... Uh, I heard that there we're going to there was a question about um, it was whether or not you're a citizen and how they should apply with oh, the, on the census. Yes. Right. Do you know more about that? I only know. A little uh, bit. I know that it got deemed unconstitutional. To yes. Even have that question yeah, come up. Right. Which may they may have been using in order to gerrymander certain districts and draw yes. the lines around and isolate people that, that you know would have voted a certain way with people that were going to vote the opposite way. Um, I think we're going to take one more PSA announcement right now. We'll be back here on the Breeze Radio Hour. I know. How, how far are we in? Okay, so Sarah, I'm dropping you off at Emily's. Yep. And Josh, you're going to? Soccer, Dad. Soccer practice. Right. Oh, by the way, I just wanted to let you know when I pick you both up, I'll be wearing my short shorts. What? No! Yep, and my dorky dad hat, and I'm going to do my dad dance for all your friends. They'll love it! Seriously? Why? Because I like my short shorts. Of course, I could be talked out of it if you guys would just buckle up your seatbelts without giving me a hard time. It's important to get your kids to buckle up for safety, no matter what it takes. And sometimes, all it takes is your parental powers of persuasion. 
Okay, okay, we're buckling up. See, all buckled. Good choice. I'll just have to do my dad dance at dinner time. What, what? No! Do what you have to to make sure your kids are wearing their seatbelts, even on short drives. Never give up until they buckle up. A message from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Visit safercar.gov slash kidsbuckleup for more information. Hydrogen cyanide, carbon monoxide. These are just a few of the 7,000 chemicals that can be traced from cigarettes. Tobacco-related deaths are expected to rise to around 8 million annual deaths worldwide by the year 2030. Put down the cigarette and don't be one of those people. Welcome to the chafee.edu backslash podcast. We are talk I'm here with Eric Spencer. And we are still talking about voter suppression. You can tune in to listen to us at 1630 AM. So where did we leave off, Eric? We left off talking about disenfranchisement disenfranchisement of voters and we were about to discuss maybe some changes in California that have occurred to maybe address this problem. Yes, we were just informed that uh, California actually has a same-day registration and that they are planning on doing a mail-in ballot to pretty much every voter. But I still believe that you do need an ID to uh, access these. Okay. Any other changes? Uh, I don't think so. I don't believe so, not to my knowledge. So mail-in mail in ballot, so everybody yes. can, can do it from their home. So, so no cost. They have to work, or lines are re- really long. I know Bernie Sanders, during this last primary... Um, oh, he was upset. I heard about He was that. upset, and he filed a lawsuit in within the court systems to try to immediately keep the the polling stations open an extra two hours because mm-hmm. people were waiting six hours in line, which is another way to suppress the vote. If you, if you find areas that are, you know, a certain demographic that you know how they're going to vote, mm-hmm. then you close polling stations. And this has happened across the country since 2016. There's far less polling stations available. And so at, where, where I voted in Riverside and I've and San Bernardino, and I've never had a problem. I just walked right in, voted. Mm-hmm. You know, these, these are tend to be conservative areas as far as California is concerned. And there was absolutely no problem for me voting, but in a lot of the poor areas in L.A. and other places, people were waiting up to six hours in line and still didn't get to vote. So that's definitely an aspect of voter suppression that uh, should be recognized. I think a uh, trailing on to uh, more voter suppression, I would say the biggest one that I think it packs a lot of the um, just a, a lot of the. Uh, minorities, I'd say, would be uh, felony disenfranchisement. So a felony conviction, of course, can come with consequences relating to voters, like varied by states. But some ban voting only during like incarceration, some ban voting for life, some ban voting while you're on probation or parole. It just 
varies on states. But yeah, and then others obviously only ban voting while you're incarcerated. I think I already mentioned that. And some states like Maine and Vermont don't disenfranchise people with the felony convictions at all. So it's like, hmm. it's... But you're still not allowed to vote when you're in jail. Yes. Right. <laughs> so um, so that's a tough one to, to argue for some people. You know, they would say, so should a murderer or a rapist be able to vote? Well, what would you say to that? I'd say that the racial bias in the criminal justice system, like as a like as a whole, is a huge factor in this. Like, there's um, the I'm sorry, my brain. Okay, um, you know, in nineteen, I think ninety six or no, nineteen ninety four, Clinton passed the crime bill. You know, with the help with the help of you know his buddy Joe Biden mm-hmm. at the time, who voted for it as well. And this essentially exploded the prison population in the United States. We have far more people incarcerated per capita than even these horrible authoritarian states that we demonize constantly, North Korea. I mean, they're one of the worst ones that we say. And our, our, our prison population or per capita is far above theirs. It's far above China, Russia, any, any state. I, I want to say we're like, we have triple the amount of people incarcerated per capita than China does and more overall, even mm. though we only have 370 or 350 million people in our country and they have over a billion, we still have more people locked up. And the thing with that is that these felony disenfranchisement laws, they're disproportionate. They disproportionately affect black people. So they, they often face harsher sentences and for the same offenses. Like if you want to relate to, let's say, uh, Brock Turner, like it's obviously yeah. a huge case right. where he was a four-year student at a at a university, and it was a very c- brutal and awful crime, and he served seven months right. for it, and is on parole, and still, I believe he's still able to attend his university. I'm not entirely sure of that last fact. Yeah, you know, there in, in that case, I don't know if you're going to mention this, but uh, another rape case came before this judge shortly after, mm-hmm. and it involved uh, a young black. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure what he, what, how old he was, but a, a younger black man. And he was, had this book thrown at him by the same exact judge. Wow. Yeah. So when you talk about differences in how people are sentenced mm-hmm. and how people are prosecuted and even how people are even stopped on the street. Um, yes. It's, it's a fact that, that take marijuana, for instance, black people and white people use it at the same rate. This yes. is shown by data. And yet, if you are black in this country, you have a far greater chance of, of facing being, years. Of, yeah, of being arrested and facing years. And that just ha- happens from profiling on the street. You know, if if you're you well, know. the fact that marijuana has been legal legalized throughout different states, and that we still have men, a lot of black men, that are incarcerated facing charges for petty marijuana charges, it's I find it ridiculous, in my opinion. It is. You know, part of the thing that fuels the prison population in this country is prison labor is a way bigger industry than people realize. And they have far more lobbying power than people realize. And Mm -hmm. they are lobbying our politicians to keep these laws strict so they can keep the prisons full so they can essentially use the slave labor out of these prisons to advance the profits of their particular corporation. So, you know, and like to this day, the states with the most extreme disenfranchisement laws have also have long 
long records of just suppressing the rights of black people. Like, uh, specifically, I guess, like an Iowa system of permanent disenfranchisement paired with the most disproportionate incarceration rate of black people in the nation has resulted in disenfranchisement of an estimated one in four voting age black men. So it plays hand in hand with voter suppression. It's like there's, you know, then this is definitely my opinion, but, uh, they, they, you know, the powers that be the uh, political establishment and the, and the corporations that control them do not want voter turnout to be high because if voter turnout becomes high, real change is possible. And so anybody who didn't vote in this last primary, I would hope that you come out for the general and I hope that there's someone worth voting for there. That's another form, I think, of voter suppression that's less talked about is the fact that people don't feel there's anybody to vote for. Yes. Or, or that their vote doesn't even matter anyways. Mm-hmm. Which um, we're going to talk about what, you know, what your what does your vote actually mean after the break uh, when we're talking about uh, Democratic superdelegate system and the delegate system and how that works so stay tuned after this PSA announcement on the Ch- Chafee Breeze Radio Hour. Hey, did you see that post online about Julie? I totally wrote it. Wasn't it hilarious? Is all of that true? Who cares? She's dumb anyways. Are you talking about that post about Julie? Yeah, funny, right? No, but that post about you was. What post? Oh, you didn't hear? You're fat, you're ugly, you're stupid, and oh yeah, you smell too. The whole school saw it, no big deal. That's so mean. Do they really write that about me? No, but how does it feel? Sometimes you can feel all alone when being bullied. That's when you can really use a friend. If you see someone you know being bullied online, let them know they're not alone. Stand up now, support a friend, save a life. For more information on cyberbullying, visit stopthemean.wordpress.com or call our hotline at 1-800-555-STOP. Welcome back to the Breeze Radio Hour. We're here talking about voter suppression, and uh, we're going to talk about the delegate system in the Democratic Party in a minute, but... First, we're going to wrap up with a little bit of more information about how voter suppression works. Maddie, what do you got for us? Well, to wrap it up, I basically just want to touch on the subject about, like, who exactly is affected by uh, voter suppression. And just in general, I believe it's all of us. Because the whole reason we vote in the first place is because it's the most fundamental and constitutional right. And it's we, the people who are supposed to shape this government. And if we have these laws that are enacted or these... uh, let's say, just just factors that are to suppress the voter, It's it makes it hard. It makes it harder for us to show up. It makes it harder for us to feel as motivated to vote. But the fact is, is that some groups are disproportionately affected by voter suppression tactics, including people of color, young people, the elderly, and people with disabilities, and that we should stay as educated as possible about how to combat these so, uh, these things that are trying to suppress our vote. Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen without a lot of people getting in the streets. And just to, you know, segue from that, uh, who gets disenfranchised in the Democratic system, Democratic Party's primary system? I recently wrote a piece that'll be coming out in the breeze 
print edition, which you should look for after the spring break. It's going to be our only print edition of the semester. It's going to be a good one. Yeah. Also <laughs> check it out online at thebreezepaper.com. We have lots of stories, arts and entertainment and opinion pieces and news. Um, I wrote a piece that wasn't an opinion piece, although I'll probably mention more of my opinion on it during this explanation of it. But the democratic delegate system, it's a very complicated process. Um, and I'm trying, I'm going to try to give you a rundown because even reading through tons of articles, it just sometimes even becomes even foggier. So in order to cl- for a candidate to clinch the nomination in the Democratic Party, it has to be done at the Democratic National Convention. And there, there's a possible 3,979 possible delegates. These delegates are earned through states. They're called pledged delegates. And you earn them by performing well in each particular state. Now, depending on the percent, each state has a certain amount of delegates to award. Um, and you are awarded the pledge delegates based on, well, supposed to be awarded the pledge delegates based on the voting outcome of that particular state. Now, being that there are 3,979 possible delegates, if no candidate wins an outright majority of these delegates, then the superdelegates come into play. And an additional 771 delegates are added. You know, these are all superdelegates. And the superdelegates are made up of congresspeople, governors, senators and all former presidents so every former president gets to be a superdelegate congresspeople governors senators so and they can essentially vote any way they want to it sounds like and i don't mean to chime in but it sounds almost elitist if i mean yeah talk about voter suppression just (laughs) saying you know what our votes each delegate vote is going to amount to scores of of our own votes but it, it gets even weirder than that so the pledged delegates that that you win from each state um, they consist of state and local leaders um, within the Democratic Party, the majority, oh, like mayors and Senate, state re- state representatives. But most of them consist of not Democratic uh, Party committee insiders, sorry. And uh, they have an overwhelming... So a delegate, you're awarded this from the state, but it's still a delegate. They they say, I'm a I'm a mayor from one of these cities who's a, who's a state delegate, a pledge delegate, and my my area voted for, say, Bernie Sanders. So then I'm expected to go to the convention and pledge my, or cast my vote for Bernie Sanders. That's how it works. But the Democratic Party says that that, barring any state laws that, that, that limit these delegates from changing their votes from what the popular outcome was in each state... As far as the Democratic, which not all states have these laws, you know, forcing them to honor the outcome of the primary votes, they can essentially go to the Democratic National Convention. And we're not even talking about superdelegates. We're talking about pledge delegates, mm-hmm. the ones that are absolutely, you can find the count online. Bernie Sanders has this many. Biden has this many. But those delegates can go to the National Convention and vote however they want. I mean, you know, your guess is as good as mine on how or why we how that works mm-hmm. you know and then so as far as so the superdelegates won't come into play unless someone does not have an outright majority and in 2016 there was only two candidates you know but um going into the convention so naturally someone was going to have a majority and not just a plurality like just because you have the most votes doesn't mean you have over the fit than 50 percent of the votes so someone may I mean, so now in 2020 with 
something, you know, there was like 10 candidates at one point. Mm-hmm. So for someone to get a majority is going to be impossible mm-hmm. because even the people that are leading only have maybe 20 something, 30 percent. Well, I know so, a lot of the uh, Democratic uh, candidates have dropped out, like especially with have. like, I know so, I heard Warren just recently dropped out uh, yeah. and um, they're all endorsing Biden. How do you feel about that? Did Warren endorse Biden? I heard, I believe so. Wow. You know. I would have to fact check that though. That's just, that's upsetting. But, but I know anyway. that Buttigieg did. I know. So um, if a candidate does drop out, what happens to their delegates that they've already earned? Mm-hmm. So if a candidate drops out, yeah, they're the candidate that they were pledged to may endorse someone, but those delegates are not, um, they don't have to vote for who their candidate endorsed. Warren okay. has not endorsed anybody. I guess we just fact checked that and Warren has not endorsed anyone yet. And that is thank you. better news than, <laughs> than I thought. But yes, because I personally, it's a bit worrying that uh, he might get a spot in the general. Yeah. Um, in my opinion. So uh, y- these delegates that are pledged towards candidates that have dropped out, you know, um, th- and there's been a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to find the exact number here, but um, you know, between Buttigieg, um, Klobuchar, mm-hmm. Warren, all of them accumulated. Um, Bloomberg, all of them accumulated a, a certain amount of delegates. But now that they're not in the race, those delegates can vote however they want. I mean, I, I don't understand. Does the general that, public have any ideas how those uh, delegates are going to vote? I don't think so. I mean, you know, if I could guess, I would guess that they're going to go towards the establishment candidate which the only one left which is joe biden Mm -hmm. so you know if all those go towards joe biden which those people did not vote for joe biden yes um you know the superdelegate system has changed before last election they were allowed to vote on the first ballot meaning like it doesn't matter if you come in with a majority or not they still get to cast their votes this they tried to pull back the power of the superdelegates by only letting them go on a second ballot which means if someone doesn't have a majority then then they get to vote mm-hmm. but with so many people in the race and them holding their own delegates it's going to be impossible for anyone to have a majority going into the so there it's almost certain that the superdelegates are going to get to vote and they're going to get to sway the election. And the New York Times recently spoke to 93 delegates. Wow. Of those, 84 said they would risk inter-party damage to oppose Sanders if he enters the convention with just a plurality. <laughs> so um, if all this is confusing to you, um, we'll just, you know, there was recently an interview with a former state representative in South Carolina, Anton Gunn, who uh, summed up this process. And he's he's a party insider. He was a former... Obama advisor and the quote I have here is the party decides the nominee the public doesn't really decide the nominee so he's basically referring to the process of this entire process being democratic theater mm-hmm. it's not real your vote you know talk about voter suppression what are you actually voting for if you're yeah, where's vote, your voice going if you're going if you're voting into a system where they can just go nope and elect whoever they want you know, um, all of the candidates, most of the candidates at one point, Buttigieg, Warren, they all advocated before 2020 that one person in one vote should be how we count the system. It seems pretty basic. Yes. But now that they're all in the race or now that they were in the race and, you know, at all of the 
all of the debates when they were asked that direct question, you know, now they're backing the delegate process because they thought Bernie was going to win and they, and they're trying to stop him. So, you know, when it, when it works in your favor, when it sounds good to a crowd, you say it, but when it, when it's going to benefit yourself, you're going to back away from, you know, the idea of democracy. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to wrap it up here on the Chafee Breeze or the Breeze Radio Hour. Uh, We're going to go to one more PSA. We'll be right back. These are the sounds of someone taking their eyes off the road. Texting while driving is more than distracting. It's dangerous. Do yourself a favor. Do us all a favor. When you're on the road, stay off the phone. A message from CTIA, America's wireless companies, and the National Safety Council. Welcome back to the Chafee Broadcast. We're here with Eric Spencer, and we're here just to wrap it up. Uh, you can tune in pretty much at 2 o'clock once a week. We have different hosts, different topics, much to learn about, much to hear about. Tune in at 1630 a.m. or at chafee.edu broadcast. And, and sorry to interrupt. <laughs> and make sure you check us out at thebreezepaper.com. We'll be streaming this pod or this radio show as a podcast yes. um, every time we finish one. So if you missed some past episodes, you can always tune into those. And look out for the the Breeze print edition coming after spring break. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Hi.